intend to be the mayor of all of the people, not just for those who voted for me. I intend to be the mayor of those persons who voted for Rudolph Giuliani as well. You have given me the mayor's job, and in the months ahead, in many different ways, I will ask each of you what you can give to this city. So it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of New York City and New York State. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jarrett, good to see you. How you doing? I'm doing well, Ben. You? Good. So that was a clip, the sound of uh, what was a Wednesday morning in New York City on November 8th, 1989, uh, which was the end of a campaign, a mayoral campaign that at this point 30 years ago was in full swing, very close to the primary where Ed Koch, a mayor of three terms seeking a fourth, faced David Dinkins, who was going to go on to become the city's first and to this point only mayor of color. Yes. So we're 30 years from that historic campaign. And we decided here in the summer of 2019 to sort of look back. Uh, Mayor Dinkins is now 92 years old, and we thought it'd be a great opportunity to chat with him about his career, about becoming mayor, about becoming the city's first and to this point only black mayor. Uh, So we spent a little time with Mayor Dinkins recently at his office at Columbia University, where he spends some time still, uh, and he graciously gave us some of his time. So on the show today, You're going to hear uh, our chat with Mayor Dinkins in his office where he uh, reminisces a bit and reflects a bit. And later in the show, we'll talk with Tom Robbins, uh, legendary investigative journalist. You had the opportunity uh, to work with him and still do in in some ways, um, who covered Dinkins closely and gives his reflections on that election. So here is the 106th mayor of New York City, David Dinkins. How did you come to run for mayor? When you became Manhattan Borough President, was that a logical next step for you? How did you reach that decision? Well, uh, first of all, I ran for Manhattan Borough President three times before I succeeded. People used to say to me, what do you do? I said, I run for Borough President. (laughs) And so finally we, we succeeded. And uh, I loved it, being borough president of Manhattan, because in the days of the Board of Estimate, when you, you had each of the five boroughs, the mayor, council president, controller, I used to say to the other borough presidents, you know, we're Manhattan. We got Madison Avenue and Wall Street and the Apollo Theater, so we, you know, we're, we're bad. <laughs> so I, I really enjoyed being borough president. So after having worked so hard to become borough president, to run for mayor was, uh, was not automatic in, in my mind. In a sense, I was drafted. My supporters uh, insisted that I run. I said, okay, and uh, good luck would have it, we prevailed. How many times did did people have to ask? Were you an easy they sell or a no, tough no, sell? No, no, they asked a lot. Was your hesitation well, taking it, on a, an incumbent? What? Well, that was part of it, but we all agreed that we needed somebody to defeat the mayor, Ed Koch. 
it, from my perspective, uh, I had achieved what I wanted. I'm, I'm borough president of Manhattan, as good as it gets. I never ever said, gee, I want to be mayor of New York City. I, I, that, that didn't cross my mind. But it worked out. <laughs> How did you feel going into that race? Obviously, you were running to become mayor, but you were running to become the first black mayor. How did you feel about that pioneer label? Did that inspire you? Did you feel that was a burden? No, I thought it, 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 in, in some ways it was, uh, it was good. It, it was, uh, see, if the prize is great, you know, you, you sort of work harder. And, and to become mayor of New York, be the first black mayor, you know, all this is very positive. Uh, on the other hand, uh, were I to not prevail, after having worked so hard to become our president, you know, that but it, it worked out. So that was a lot of risk that you were taking and the possibility of, in some ways, your political career being over, uh, yeah, at I least on a big pause. Yeah, that's true. Did you tell the people that were drafting you, hey, I've got a lot, a lot more I'm putting on the line here? No, they, and everybody understood that. We all yeah. knew what the risks were. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I had a lot of wonderful, good people. Nobody gets anywhere alone. Some of the best people you can find. There's a fellow named Bill Lynch, who he, he, he had faith in our cause and thought we could prevail, and we did. People refer to your victory in 1989 as the result of a, the Dinkins coalition between liberal whites and black and Hispanic voters. Uh, was that a coalition that you consciously assembled? Did you know that that was the recipe for victory, or is that just sort of how things worked out? I think it's more how things worked out. And uh, I had, uh, although Bill Lynch, uh, he had great vision. He was amazing. So he saw the he saw the path. Oh, to he, victory. he uh, but he was. Uh, he always had faith that we could we could do what we did. You're looking around your office at all these photos. There's you with Arthur Ashe. Yeah, see, I sit here and I have my back to him, so I don't get to really enjoy him <laughs> as much as I would wish. When you see yourself with, with Arthur Ashe, with Nelson Mandela, uh, some other luminaries, whether it's in politics or sports, what, what goes through your mind at this point in terms of the fact that you became, you know, mayor of New York City and it elevated you to this status. You see, I tell everybody, tell young people, who, students who come to see me, nobody but nobody gets anywhere alone. Everybody stands on somebody's shoulders. And I had an awful lot of help. So many wonderful, good people. In 89, were you more worried about Koch or Rudy Giuliani? Because you knew if you defeated Koch in the primary, you'd be facing Rudy, who was a very popular figure. Who do you think was the harder man to beat? No, I, I don't know. I suppose first you had to, you got to get into the race first. So it means you had to, I had to uh, defeat the mayor. But we, we, we had a, a good team, bright young women and men who, uh, they were just so good. Talk about becoming, becoming mayor. You know, we've seen, really, it's a very interesting, you know, diversity of paths to become mayor over the last uh, several decades, you know, different positions that people have held leading up mm. to becoming mayor. How prepared were you as Manhattan Borough president and your other, you know, career work in politics to become mayor? Can anybody really be prepared to be mayor of New York City 
How prepared do you feel uh, that you were? Well, I felt that we were, were, quote, ready in that sense because uh, of uh, my career up to that point. Being Burr president of Manhattan is a, a huge step in that direction. And see, and it's not like I woke up one morning and said, gee, I think I'd like to be mayor. You know, Bill Clinton and these little boys said, what are you gonna be, you're gonna wanna be president. But I, I never had those thoughts. And it sort of evolved and it, and it became quite logical that this was the next step. They, they say the rest is history. When you were becoming mayor, you, so you win the election, you're going to be the next mayor, you take office. What was the disposition of the press toward you? Do you think they were giving you the benefit of the doubt? Were they generally respectful, or was there a lot of cynicism, uh, or skepticism, I should say? How do you feel you were being treated sort of from day one by the, by the press? Well, I think that in the very beginning, I thought they, I think the press thought we wouldn't succeed, and, but then we did. And then it was a question of, well, how are you going to handle it from here? I suppose I was as treated as well as anybody. I never had any real huge complaints against the press. Call them like you see them, fellas. Are there things about being mayor that you can only know once you do the job? Is it? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm sure. You know, we've heard, I, I, it always sticks out to me, you know, our current mayor, Bill de Blasio, who we can maybe get, get to a little later in the conversation, but, you know, he talked early on about just the speed of, and the number of decisions, you know, sort of the, the just immensity of it, the volume of it is, is nothing you really know until you do it. Did you find that to be the case? Yeah, it, it is in many ways. I know I used to fly in at night and, uh, you know, there's all the lights and it's very pretty and you'd look out the plane and say, gee, Look at all this, and I'm in charge. But I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed being mayor. It was you have to one has to appreciate what New York City is. This gorgeous mosaic, this this magnificent town, Madison Avenue and Wall Street and Harlem and on and on and on. And you're the guy in charge. Now that means you get to blame, but that goes with it. No, I I love being mayor. Terrific. And you were mayor during some tough times. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. not every mayor comes in with very challenging economic times, for example, that yeah, you have very had, little had, control we had, over. We had, we, had, we had the deficits to face and all, but we left in far better shape than, than when we started. But the key is the people. It really is. Uh, and I don't say this out of modesty or something. I mean, really honest to God is the people. If you've got good folks, you can do almost anything. And we had good people. Women and men, young and old, and they were terrific. And we believed in each other. They had faith in me and I had faith in them. Were you, um, were you focused when you were mayor, you know, I've read and, and seen you talk about, you know, a focus on children and families. Um, how would you describe to, to people who aren't very familiar, you know, what were, what were your main focus areas as mayor? Obviously, you had to deal with those deficits you mentioned, and you mentioned homelessness already. What else were your, you know, key focus areas? Well, of course, children always. I'm, I'm a 
I'm a nut for kids. And, uh, little ones, middle-sized ones, big ones. I, I'm very fond of children and young people. So that was very important to me that we, we be uh, as responsive as was possible to the needs of, uh, of young people. And because the folks with whom I worked had the same attitude, I mean, we all believed in, in this. That made that part easy. I don't mean that achieving what you wanted was was easy, but I didn't have to sit down, close the door, and debate with my people what we ought to do. We, we by and large, we were in agreement, but I always listened. I always listened to my people. And they, they were terrific. Crime was uh, a story in New York City's up. Crime has always been part of the story in New York City, but in the 1980s, increasing crime was certainly part of the story. And fairly or not, that seemed to come to a head during your mayoralty, and you proposed the Safe... Uh, safe Street, Safe City program, which... Talk about how that came... Was that something that you, when you came into office, you thought there was a need for, or is that something that dawned on you? No, no, it was, there? it was always apparent that you, you know, you need to be a a genius to see that this was an area that you had to attack. And, and we did. And we, largely by going to Albany and persuading the legislature they should give us the resources. And I remember uh, Milt Mullen, who was uh, one of my deputy mayors, and he, 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 he looked like if you call central casting says, send me a, a judge, that's who they'd send. He, lo he, lo he looked like that. So he was very dignified and whatnot, and uh, he was terrific. And so we were in Albany and uh, visiting the leadership, trying to persuade them that we needed more resources to get the, the money for cops and whatnot. And I remember uh, Milt and I saying to uh, one leader, uh, he said, you know, people are dying in the streets, and we, we got to... And this cat said, Mr. Mayor, my constituency is interested in auto theft and graffiti. And Milt hit the seat. So it, was, it wasn't easily done, but we, we got it done. But you, you needed the resources to get the police officers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And to get the money, we had to go to Albany, hat in hand. And these things obviously take time, right? It takes time to oh, yeah. pull that together, get things passed, then get the resources, then get more officers hired into the academy, et cetera. And pretty quickly, you're running for re-election. If the timeline is slightly different, is there a different outcome in that next election? You know, if, if uh, who knows? <laughs> who, I don't know. Who, who knows? Yeah. Uh, I, we had to do what we did. That was what was required, which was necessary, irrespective of what my own political fate was going to be down the line. I mean, the city needed it. We needed more police officers uh, for reasons that you point out. I mean, people were dying, and it was, it was tough. But we were—good folks make the difference. We were, we were noticing before you came on the wall, there's a quote from Pat Lynch. 
about yeah. in 2015 there's a quote from pat lynch saying we need to go back to the levels of safe city safe streets to or uh, to to protect the city it says uh he was on new york one saying that's what saved the city was that level of policing does does that quote say to you you know it's a it's much later but it's sort of a more of a validation than you got at the time i mean is that is that symbolic of that that in 2015 you know pat lynch uh, of the police uh union is saying we need to go back to you know basically what david dinkins made happen on the city streets well i mean it's, it's nice for our accomplishments to be acknowledged that's always very pleasant uh but but it it was a tough time. So you you got to see from a very interesting vantage point Giuliani's development from 1989 to 93, and we've obviously seen what happened since. Was he a different person in that second race? Was there a different kind of uh, well, I was, edge or message? I guess it's fair to say that I was never very fond of him anyway, and. Uh, so from time to time, these days things happen, and and uh, people complain about him, and I say, "See, I told you." <laughs> is there something that hits you when you're inaugurated as mayor that this is this is all my responsibility now, or leading up to that, were you uh -oh. were you pretty aware? No, no, of that? no. I I, uh, I I I felt the weight, <laughs> and uh, and the. There's some really great people here. There's Harry Belafonte, who was, a, he was a master ceremonies. At, uh, this is inauguration day, as you see. And Percy Sutton. Mm -hmm. uh, Fritz Alexander, who's a judge of the Court of Appeals. Who, he and I have been uh, friends, longtime friends, and law partners. And imagine the, the emotion for each of us uh, after all those years, and here he's swearing me in as mayor. Yeah. Do you have any regrets? No. No. Well, I'm sure there were many things that we could have done better or differently or whatever, but no. And there's Victor Gottbaum. Mm. I, I owe him so much. Next to that inauguration picture, there's a picture of you with the Obamas. Oh, there. What, uh, yeah, that's more recent. That's right. The, but what, what was it like seeing Barack Obama elected in 2008? Oh, I thought it was terrific. He's a great guy. What do you think of the current mayor? Well, I'm, I'm biased in his favor because he, he worked with us. Sure. He and his bride. She was one of my speechwriters. He credits you with essentially uh, <laughs> helping them, them to, to meet one another. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> but uh, she's terrific, and, and on occasion, these days we might be on a, a, a dais together, and I'll say I don't have a speech because she didn't write one for me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they're terrific. Yeah. Have you have you seen Bill De Blasio's mayoralty as as in any way an extension of yours? Sort of picking picking that back up. I mean, obviously his main. Focus no, no, was pre-K. He, he, he's his own person, and uh, and I uh, I can't claim any credit. 
have great pride in what he's able to do. But I, I don't say it's because of, of, of our administration oh, sure. or anything like that, no. So the municipal building is now named after you, is it? How about that? Isn't that something? Well, he, it was he who told me that. They, they, somebody discovered that they had the capacity to do that without the assent of the city council or anyone else. And I said, man, I've been happy with a lamppost. <laughs> but this is terrific. So I'm very pleased about that. But that's a big building, and your name will be on it forever, presumably. That means that our grandchildren will be walking by someday and will tell their kids that building's named after David and Dinkins. And you'll say, I knew that guy. <laughs> and the grandkids will say, well, what did he do? What should, what should people say? What, well, what did you do? I like I like kids a lot. Uh, I, I sometimes people ask me what I want to be remembered for, and I I, I always say I want to be remembered as somebody who cared about people, especially children. And because as you know, I have a my bride and I we have a little boy and a little girl. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, a mayoral election with no incumbent coming up uh, in a couple years now. Are you? Anything you're hopeful about there? We, you know, obviously um, we haven't had a second African-American mayor in the city, never had a Latino mayor in the city. Is that something you think about? Or a woman. Or a woman, yeah, absolutely. Um, I just hope that, that uh, we get somebody who really cares about the same kinds of things that I care about, um, children, and see, there are a lot of good people out here. Uh, question is them getting elected. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I don't know who the candidates are going to be, or well, but whoever whoever it is, I hope they recognize what a magnificent city this is. Um, over eight million people, and all walks of life, all ethnicities. And, uh, Man, man, this is a magnificent city. It really is. And 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 I hope someone will say, well, gee, I want to be in charge of all of that, and I want to do good and wonderful things. That that's. But to to do that, you need good people. Mm -hmm. Would you consider running again? <laughs> no, hell no. If drafted. No. Uh, no. Is that I, uh, been there, done that? <laughs> Is that one of the keys? Is is thinking about it as serving all all the people versus picking you know lots of folks who are trying to assemble a winning campaign? Think about the different demographic groups, whether it's from labor or it's race or it's age or whatever it might be that they need to pull together. Um, you know, it sounds like you know part of your message to people is thinking about being the mayor for all New Yorkers versus thinking in that more well, segmented it's, it's, way. It's true. And that, and that, can, uh, and that can sound like a uh, campaign rhetoric, but it is true, though. If, if, if the mayor of New York should really want to be mayor of all of the people, young and old, rich and poor, should care about everybody. And uh, and it's not enough for the mayor 
the standard bearer to him, but all his troops, the women and men who supported him, have to have the same attitude. And we that's what we had. We talk about good fortune. Oh, man. We couldn't miss. Why do you think, this is just a last question yeah. I have, why do you think there hasn't been, since you, a mayor of color or a woman? It's, it, there have been several elections. Why do you think New York hasn't gone in that direction? I don't know. It, it well might have. I guess you have to take each election and see, well, who were the, who were the people running at the time? And Are there some sort of calcified interests and powers that need to still be be broken in the city? Or is it more a matter of just the right people? I think the right person will attract the, the requisite group of supporters. You know, I, I love to tell the story of fifth grader. And there was a turtle high up on a, on a fence post. And the teacher said, well, what, what, do, what do you observe? What do you? And a little kid says, I know one thing. He didn't get there by himself. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, we'll leave it there. Mayor okay. Dinkins, thank you so much for the time. We okay. appreciate it. Thank you. And that was Mayor David Dinkins reflecting on his election as the first and only to this date black mayor of New York City and his one term as mayor. And we'll be right back with more here on Max and Murphy on WBAI. And you're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI Radio 99.5. FM and WBAI.org. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette with Jarrett Murphy of City Limits. We just spoke uh, recently with Mayor David Dinkins on the 30th anniversary of his election as mayor. Uh, it was really interesting, Jarrett, to be in his office, to talk with him, to ha- hear him reflect a bit on his election and his term. Anything particular that stood out to you? Just striking to see him, you know, what is not carried through in the audio, see him looking at the picture of Election Day and uh, what that must have meant to him, um, what that meant to people who supported him, uh, what must have seemed like a very hopeful moment. Obviously, his mayoralty had a lot of ups and downs, and he did not succeed in being reelected. But it was it was interesting to see a person at that point in their life kind of looking back at a, a, a pivotal moment in his history and, frankly, in the cities as well. Yeah, and as we discussed a little bit with him, you know, it was, it was interesting to be in that office where he has so much memorabilia and just see him in those some of those photos with such historic figures, and he is one of those. Right, Nelson uh, Mandela, Jesse Jackson, yeah. And, and you know, it's just it's fascinating to, to, to talk with someone who made the history that he made. Um, and it's important, you know, at this point, 30 years on with him at 92, to take some time to reflect on that. And I'm really glad we had, had the opportunity to do that. Uh, we also... You and I are living proof yes. that a mayor is not really a mayor without the journalists that cover him uh, and maybe someday her. And so we wanted to get another perspective on that election, that era, what Dinkins was like as mayor, what his legacy is today looking back. And so we decided to talk to one of the great journalists of our era and certainly somebody who is a big part of covering David Dinkins, Tom Robbins, formerly of City Limits, the New York Observer, the Daily News during the Dinkins period, Village Voice after that. We spoke to him at his office at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY, and he talked about his time covering David Dinkins. One of the things we want to try to do is take people back to the context when Dinkins was elected mayor Mm -hmm. um, and what the city was like and 
and sort of how Koch was viewed. So Koch in 85 wins re-election by like 80%. Um, was he seen as vulnerable by the time the 89 race began to roll around? Yes. Yes, it was, it was clear that there were people itching to take him on in his bid to get a fourth term. And, and there were other candidates in addition to Dinkins who like, um, you know, threw their hat in the ring. Um, but Ed Koch had gone from someone who was widely acclaimed for his ability to sort of get his hands around the city that had, you know, floundered during the fiscal crisis at the end of the Beam era and had managed to sort of put the city on a good financial footing and was perceived, and a lot of this is just perception, as having uh, a law and order perspective, remarkably enough. And all those things had sort of helped put him into office three times. But then, uh, right after he got took office uh, the third time, he got hit by uh, this enormous, far-reaching corruption scandal that reached right into City Hall and called into question some of his most major appointments in the way he had wield power. And, you know, ironically, the guy who was wielding, you know, most of the prosecutorial acts in those cases was then Rudy Giuliani, mm -hmm. who was then U.S. Attorney for the Southern District. And, and Koch was just reeling. I mean, you could see him at, you know, during the press conferences, you know, he just was staggered by some of the things that were uh, coming to light that he clearly had had no idea about. You know, he had a been elected with support of county leaders in Queens and Brooklyn and the Bronx at a time when Democratic county leaders really counted for something and they were able to really pull sway. And they had each said, okay, you know, we would like some patronage. And he had awarded that patronage. And with all patronage, the idea was, you know, who are you going to hire? Your enemies? You know, you hire people who you think are you know, going to be able to at least do the job. And that patina wore off fairly quickly in some cases, uh, but like once the corruption scandal started, we started realizing that some real crooks had been put in charge of agencies. So all that stuff led the vulnerability. And then there was the second level, which had begun in his first term, really, where there was this steady clash with the black and Latin communities that had begun when he was first took office, you know, I remember covering the demonstrations at Gouverneur Hospital in Harlem when he sought to close it down, and, and Koch's response was basically, I don't care that I'm shutting down the main, you know, facility in this neighborhood that happens to be almost 100% uh, African American, and he just sort of enjoyed drawing that line in the sand and sort of dared people to come at him. And that thread continued, and it was, you know, there were some incredible low watermarks when you think back at them, you know, a young man named Michael Stewart who was died in a similar chokehold as Eric Garner in the 14th Street subway because he was painting graffiti on the wall. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know the same low-level offenses like selling Lucy's. Uh, and, and he was just the first of, of several of those cases that, that continued, you know, right through his administration. So yeah, you know, there was like the, the, the that segment of white Voters were disenchanted because of the corruption issue, and there was widespread antipathy against him because of the uh, uh, racial unrest that he had seemed to have a tin ear to. So yeah, he was vulnerable. And David Dinkins decided he was going to run against him. And was Dinkins seen as like a, a, a likely uh, next mayor? Was he was he seen as a very serious contender? He had 
tried and failed a few times to become borough president and finally had achieved that. Was he, was he seen as like marital material at that point? Right. He said to us that, you know, by the time he got to become borough president, he was like, oh, this is all I wanted. This is, this is the greatest gig, you know, in the world. You know, I think that's really true. I yeah. think that's all that David Dinkins really did see in his career. Don't forget, this is a guy who was shot down in his earlier highest bid for, you know, at least prestigious job because of the fact that he'd failed to file his taxes. You know, he was going to be a deputy mayor, and then he had to step down because of the fact that, oh, look at this, you know. I mean, he, and he thought, I think, he would never really escape that. And uh, his stroke of luck was that he ran into a guy named Bill Lynch. And Bill Lynch was an incredible organizer who had uh, you know, support in labor unions across the city because he'd been a labor organizer. He had been active. He was the guy who led those Gouverneur Hospital demonstrations back then. You know, he had he had tried to help elect Frank Barbaro. Barbaro was a Democratic former longshoreman assemblyman who actually gave Koch a good run for his money in the Democratic primary. You know, there was always like. 40% who were willing to vote against Koch in the primary. It never got much higher than that. Pretty uh, high, though. But, pretty, pretty you know, that's you know, a significant number that you mm -hmm. sort of start with. You know, so Lynch said, we can do this. You know, I think he recognized in Dinkins somebody whose essential decency and non-threatening demeanor could play well into the time. You know, I mean, in, in retrospect, look, you know, what, what could have been, there were other people from that ilk that Dinkins represented who probably would have been much more, uh, I'd say the word, they, they would be much better at the job of mayor. Guys like Percy Sutton, who had, had the job of borough president, uh, guys like Basil Patterson, uh, even Charlie Rangel, if he was ever willing to give up his post in Congress, which he would never do. You know, I think any one of those guys had a bigger understanding of politics. You know, they understood what it meant and how to hold the reins of power. And, and Dinkins, you know, had trouble with that. You know, and we saw that almost as soon as he came into office. He 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 said to us um, that he he felt prepared that by between uh, his election and. Inauguration Day and taking over the reins um, that he felt ready. Do you agree with that assessment? Do you think he was he was ready? I mean, some of what you just said seems to indicate, you know, maybe not. Although, you know, we also sort of said to him, can anybody really be ready to become right. mayor of New York City? Right. You never know what kind of curveballs are going to get thrown your way. Was he ready? Look, he took over a huge financial hole that Ed Koch had dug for him. You know, I forget how many billions the city was in the red for when he took over in his first budget. But from the moment he took office, he knew that he was going to have to scramble and that there were going to be layoffs and that he was going to have difficulty doing new contracts with the unions, which is always like a, you know, a pothole for a mayor. Uh, and he was ready for all those things. I think he, I think he did open up with, uh, and also with a great team. You know, I mean, some of the people that he brought into city government in that first wave, you know, were some of the best civil servants that I think we've ever seen in this city. You know, everybody from, you know, uh, some of his deputy mayors, you know, like Cesar Perales and, and, you know, his corporation counsel, Victor Kovner, you know, to you know, housing commissioner, Felice Machete, the health commissioner, Margaret Hamburg. There were so many people, I thought, that Nancy Waxstein who ran homelessness. You know, homelessness actually went down in the Dinkins years, which was, you know, had been a issue that 
had really also troubled Koch in his last term because people started paying attention to it. And he had finally decided that he was going to spend some money starting the rehabs in the Bronx. Dinkins had focused on that. He had done a really good report uh, while he was borough president, uh, a home, not a shelter, or a shelter, not a home, or something like that. And he, and he had said, you know, we're going to try to transition out of the current way that we handle homelessness into a new way of dealing with it. And he handled this woman, he hired this woman, Nancy Waxstein, who, you know, came out of the business of providing assistance to homelessness, and she was a tiger. So yeah, you know, he he was prepared in those ways in terms of having you know selected people who could who could make the job work, uh, but there was also a lot of stuff that you know you weren't going to be able to you know figure out you know was coming your way, mm-hmm. uh, and that's where that gap you said about the differences between him and some of those other figures really might have shown itself because of his not being such a political animal and not necessarily having a, a certain personality. Well, here's, ben, ben, here's a here's an example, right? So one of the remarkable things about the Dinkins loss in 93 was that he was the first incumbent mayor in the 20th century to lose a general election. Every other incumbent, once they made it past the primary, Beam, you know, obviously got shot down by Koch in 77 in the primary. But every other mayor got elected because they were up against a weak Republican Party. It was a Democratic town, you know. So, uh, you know, with the exceptions of, you know, uh, the, you know, back to LaGuardia years, you know, that was like, it was the rule that, like, you know, an incumbent mayor started at a significant advantage. This guy had, I think, a lot of strikes against him that made it much harder, and he needed a political understanding of that. Ed Koch, in his terms, saw crime rise every single year. Every single year, the number of murders went up. The crime in the seven categories went up. In the last three years of the Dinkins administration, crime went down in every major category that the FBI keeps. For the last 36 months of his administration, it's the first time that crime had begun to fall. And yet, if you ask people, even today, like what happened to the Dinkins administration, the universal perception is that crime spiraled out of control. And there's good reasons for that. Look, you know, a kid from Utah visiting to see the tennis games gets stabbed to death trying to save his mother from a gang of thugs on the Times Square subway, you know? That's the kind of thing that rocks a city, mm-hmm. you know. And those are the kind of curveballs that you don't see coming. But isn't it interesting that here's Ed Koch, a white mayor, who was able never to be challenged on the issue of crime on all of his elections. No serious challenge against him on that. Nobody ever ran against him on that. The newspapers never called into account on that. It was seen as a police issue. It wasn't seen as a city hall issue. Dinkins who saw this you know, crime drop, never was able to translate that into his political advantage. Even though, you know, after that terrible incident with that kid Brian Watkins dying in Times Square, he and Peter Vallone crafted the Safe Streets, Safe Cities bill that then led to, like, what was it, 5,000 new cops on the streets. And yet he never really got credit for that. A, a more savvy political operative, I think, would have figured out how to use that to your advantage. So that, that's what that's what I'd say in mm-hmm. terms of the difference might be. I was watching um, a great clip yesterday of uh, WABC7's coverage the morning after Dinkins was elected in, in 89, and um, I think the correspondent was Lou Guida. 
And as he finished his stand-up... Tony Gaeta. Tony Gaeta, sorry. Yeah. As he finished his stand-up, he said, pointing to like the, how close the election was, yeah. that the results do not present a mandate, and that's going to cause trouble for this new mayor. Uh-huh. And I wondered, like, first of all, if that analysis was true, if winning by 40,000 votes isn't a mandate. Um, and then also whether that was like the perception that Dinkins had like just barely beat Giuliani, that Giuliani was this mayor kind of in exile... Um, was that like a, a, a sort of a, a thought that was present in those days? And did, did that help undermine Dinkins, that he was seen as sort of just barely mayor? You know, it was close. You know, both elections are close. Mm-hmm. With 89 and 93, they were both close. Roughly 50,000 votes. One, one year went one yeah. way, one other year went the other way. You know, um, and, and yes, you know, Giuliani never went away, and, and he did remain kind of like, you know, the white mayor in waiting, and he, you know, uh, he made himself known uh, every opportunity he got. So there was those, there was that looking over his shoulder, but I think that if you look at the, at the uh, favorability ratings for Dinkins, extraordinarily, you know, he's extraordinarily high, in the black and, and Latino community, he had like you know I think seventy plus. In the white community, he rarely broke fifty percent. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like there was still skepticism. You know, uh, the business of running a city and the business of crime, as Rudy Giuliani recognized fatally, I think, in, in his you know ninety three race that began a few years earlier, is a perception. So, despite the fact, like I say, that crime was going down, you had phenomenon like squeegee men, right? I mean, a fairly low-level obnoxiousness, but something that fed into this idea that, like, the city was out of control, that there were these uh, homeless characters wandering the streets who were shaking down people for spare change at stoplights, you know. And Dinkins was slow to recognize, like, oh, yeah, you know, this is something that we need to get our hands around. You know, as soon as Giuliani started talking about it, and after Ray Kelly, who, reminder, was first police commissioner under David Dinkins, Kelly started, you know, getting the squeegee men off the streets. You know, by the time Giuliani came in office, it was over. You know, (laughs) the squeegee problem had been taken care of because they saw this coming. But that didn't change the fact that, like, he had... And I remember the quotes from Giuliani when, you know, as late as, you know, 92, 93, saying, if you think crime is falling under this administration, you know, I have a Brooklyn Bridge to sell you. And then, you know, there's that remarkable police riot at City Hall, which is still one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was the closest thing to a white riot that we've seen since the Civil War, literally. I mean, they had to lock the doors of City Hall to keep these marauding goons out. They were, they were trying to turn over cars. They were spitting and hurling racial epithets at, at black council members. Poor Una Clark. I've never seen anyone so shaken. She was just terrified that she had tried to make it through this crowd. They went all the way up. You know, if you look at the pictures, you can see there's like there hundreds of them on the steps of City Hall shouting. And then into the middle of this, around the corner on Park Place, and, you know, Rudy Giuliani gets on a truck and starts screaming, and the problem is David Dinkins, and everybody's cheering him. You know, Sharpton said afterwards, and it's one of the few things I agreed with him, is that had been my demonstration, and I had said those things, I'd be ridden out of town on a rail. And I remember Dinkins, I don't think I was in the agreement when he gave the, when he gave his press conference, but I guess I remember the footage of him, like, just, you know, he was just so livid, you know, like, and what was that all about? 
the Civilian Complaint Review Board. Right, right, right. Dinkins had said, we need to be able to do something. The issue that Koch would never address. He said, we need to do something about police abuse. And the only way to do it was to free this CCRB, which had been created under Lindsay, but had always been hamstrung because it had cops on the board who, like, would shoot everything down. So... Oh, it became our truly civilian complaint review board, and the police hated the idea. And that's what that riot was aimed at. And, you know, the language that was used. Breslin wrote a great column about it, you know, because it came after the Crown Heights riots, where Breslin had been famously beaten up when he was by rioters on his way to cover the thing. And all the cops were yelling at, yelling at him, how does it feel to get beaten up by the N-blank people out there in Crown Heights? How does it feel to have an N-blank in City Hall, your friends, you know? He put all that in his column, you know? That was the real language being hurled right there. So nobody was ever called to account for that. And why Dinkins never captured the footage of Rudy Giuliani on that truck giving that speech was one. That's an example. Basil Patterson would have gotten that footage. Charlie Rangel would have gotten that footage. Percy Sutton would have gotten that footage. And they would have used it. And they would have said, this is the man you want for your mayor because you can see him. He's out of control. You know, he looks like a madman and he's spouting, you know, epithets himself. It's interesting because an episode like that can be a self-fulfilling prophecy about the city being out of order, and it works in the favor of the rioters exactly. who, who are, you know, causing exactly. it. Exactly. Um, talk a little bit more about your coverage of Dinkins. Uh, are there things that stand out in terms of covering his city hall? Um, are there ways in which he interacted with the press and the public um, that stand out looking back? You know, Ed Koch, you know, was famous for the fact that, you know, he never walked away from a microphone. Except for the Village Voice, by the way. When I was in the Village Voice, he would make a point of saying, I don't talk to the Village Voice. And he'd turn on his heels and just walk away. But, you know, everybody else, you know, if you came up to him with a question as he was walking through the uh, lobby, he'd stop and, you know, they couldn't pry him loose. You know, Dinkins was never as comfortable, you know, for, with the press. He never, you never felt, and he was never... He never had great handlers. You know, Al Scardino, this former Times guy who came in, was a real stiff shirt and didn't do him any favors and said some dumb things, you know. Uh, at one point, you know, Dinkins brought in some folks who Tom Kelly came in to help out, who was less an old-time newspaper guy, and, and he sort of understood how to do it. Lee Jones came in, and he was a lot looser. But Dinkins needed help with the press. You know, unlike Koch, it didn't matter, you know, like... Colleen, they would just sit in the background and just, you know, like, oh, whoever was there, you know, like they, they wouldn't have to say anything. But, like, you know, Dinkins needed help. And he never really was able to establish himself in a, in a good relationship. And there were lots of things to pick at. And I did some of the picking. You know, me and our buddy Wayne Barrett, you know, who did, you know, some, you know, real deep picking, you know, at some of the... Uh, investment deals that Dinkins had made prior to coming into office at some of the investigations that, you know, plagued his office. Uh, nothing that ever reached the level of what Koch's third term had been like, but still enough to raise questions. I went back and looked at the single longest story I wrote about the Dinkins administration for the Daily News, and it was about his work schedule. 
and I was I did it with some degree of trepidation because I remember how the story came to be. An editor came and said, "We, you know, uh, we understand that you've put in a free information request for Dinkins' schedules, which I had, looking not for his work practices, but to find out about who he was meeting with. Right. The same way I did it with every mayor. And they said, you know, when you get them, let's talk. And so I got them, and they had a perspective from the desk, which was, this guy's really not doing any heavy lifting here, you know. And... I mean, it's, it's interesting, particularly in comparison to his protege, you know, mm -hmm. uh, de Blasio. <laughs> Dinkins start, also started every day with exercise, except it was tennis. But Dinkins started every day at quarter to seven, you know, and he would go next door to that asphalt green and he would play with this guy, Skip Hartman, who ran a junior tennis league, and they would bat the ball back and forth for about an hour. He would make it to City Hall by nine. But... The perception was, and again, it was perception, was that, oh, this is a guy having fun playing tennis instead of, like, Koch had gotten to City Hall earlier. You know, he never, you know, he would supposedly walk on an exercise treadmill. I don't believe he ever did, but, you know, that's what he claimed. <laughs> uh, Dinkins, for his, you know, sanity, needed to play tennis in the morning. So that's what he did, and he did it in time to get to work at nine, the same time most people get to work. But so the story also showed that along about, you know, five o'clock every day, he would put on the tux. And we would take these famous photographs that were unmistakable. Arnie Segarra was this wonderful character who was Dinkins' body man, we'd call him today. You know, and Arnie was a political operative out of East Harlem, a wonderful guy who was like he would carry the suits, you know. And you would always see Dinkins with like, and there'd be a tux in there. And then you would, you know, Dinkins would disappear and he'd reappear in his tux on his way to some event. And he, he loved the events. So my story, which ran a front page on a Sunday and over an internal spread of three pages, I was amazed to see how long it was, sort of detailed this life of tennis and tuxedos. And at the time I wrote it, I remember I felt a little, you know, is this really the picture that's fair to present to him? It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, and it was a legitimate perspective for people to have. You know, you want someone who's going to be a tiger, right? You want a mayor who's, like, so into the job that he can really, you know, be a LaGuardia rushing around to fires and doing it. That's what New Yorkers want. And he wasn't that. So I remember Dinkins was uh, so angry about that story. He wrote, like, I forget, a 10-page response or something saying that, like, you know, this is not who I am. And fair is fair, you know, like there were a lot of things that I probably could have put in the story that would have shown, you know, that he was doing it and, you know, they weren't in there. But so that fed into it, you know, that, that fed into the perception. But, you know, I was working at the Daily News and the biggest single change that, like, you know, affected him was the sale of the Daily News after the strike when Mortimer Zuckerman bought the paper out of bankruptcy. And Zuckerman began with an agenda that was purely transactional because of the fact that he had $30 million that he wanted to recoup from the MTA that he had put down in order to buy the old Columbus Circle Coliseum site. And he had never been able to do it. You know, he had completely defaulted. And under the rules, he should have lost his $30 million, but they were and didn't want to do it because you know, he was more exactly. As soon as he bought the Daily News, you know, he started really, really, he started hiring columnists who, like, went after Dinkins, you know, much tougher. 
Uh, I had a confrontation with Zuckerman after he took over about how our coverage was way out of whack, you know, and the way we were going on that. And he said, oh, you must be a Dinkins man. And I said, well, actually, you know, you might take a look at this piece that I just did, you know, about a year ago. But we endorsed, we endorsed Rudy Giuliani in 93. We'd endorsed David Dinkins in 89 and completely flipped, you know, and he got his money back, by the way for the depot. That's one of the first things that Giuliani did when he became mayor was gave Mortimer Zuckerman most of his deposit back. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago Crown Heights and yeah. when we were talking with Dinkins we didn't get to that but he talked a few times his favorite phrase obviously the idea of the city as a gorgeous mosaic yeah. and I wondered you know when he was reacting to the Crown Heights incident if if that idea that the city was sort of the default setting was for communities to live in relative harmony with one another. If that colored his reaction, if it delayed it, or if... Well, when you say delayed reaction... Well, I just, you know, it, the, the, the impression that he did not react forcefully yeah. to the violence in, right. in Crown Heights. Right. Do you think, first of all, do you think that that charge is, is true? And secondly, you know, if, if so, what, what explains that? It's partially true. There's no question, you know, that, that, that there was a slower than necessary response to the fact, you know, people were terrified in their homes, whether or not the threat was real, but people were in their homes and people were throwing rocks and, and there, was, there was, particularly among the city community, there was legitimate grounds for being terrified. And there wasn't enough police there to handle it. We had reporters who got beaten, you know, not just Jimmy Breslin, but like, you know, a bunch of people who went to cover, you know, the riots were, you know, it was like a real danger out in the streets. So to wrap up, Tom Robbins, and thanks very much for the time. Um, 30 years looking back on David Dinkins's uh, election and, and his four years as mayor, what do you think people should, you know, how do you think people should capture uh, we've gone through a lot of the nuances, but how do you sort of sum up David Dinkins's election and, and mayorality for the city? David Dinkins remains my favorite mayor. You know, I mean, I really do believe that it was only four years and the mistakes were made. But I think that, like, during that time, New York began to be the kind of city it could be. And I think that's shown through his policies, his attitude on the homeless, his attitude about creating low-income housing back then. His, look, he created, you know, he, not, he didn't just like hire new cops. He decided he was going to keep high schools open every night so that kids would have some place to go. He created Beacon Schools, which still exist. He created the Civilian Complaint Review Board that we, we talked about a minute ago. You know, he created a, I think, almost two dozen health clinics as a way to sort of channel people away from the ERs in, in hospitals. It's just another way to deal with practical medicine needs. I thought it was a great chapter in the city. Look, uh, I do believe that, you know, Dinkins had one flaw he could do nothing about, and that's that he was a black man. And I think that that was the perception that Rudy Giuliani ran on. You know, he ran because he knew he was running against a black guy. And there was like a slice of New Yorkers who terrified of crime and that, you know, as, as portrayed through the Crown Heights riots, as portrayed through the various terrible incidents, you know, that's how they came to see him. And so we got Rudy Giuliani. But you know what's interesting is that when, when Giuliani got elected, a lot of people thought, well, he's going to be the last white mayor in New York. You know, Dinkins was the beginning of the tide, you know, and yet, you know, here we are, what, 20-some, three years later, you know, and I, you know, we still haven't seen a, you know, a minority mayor since then. That's telling, and that's interesting. Why didn't that happen? 
So that was our conversation with longtime journalist Tom Robbins in his office at the Craig Newmark School of Journalism, reflecting on the 30th anniversary of David Dinkins' election as mayor of New York City and his time in City Hall. Ben, what stood out from you? Well, I thought it was really fascinating to hear from a journalist sort of wrestling with uh, not only a mayor's legacy, but certainly the press coverage of that mayor, of the election, of the one term. We have very few one-term mayors. It's very rare for incumbents to lose. And so, you know, Dinkins, especially as the first and only to date black mayor of the city, to be a one-term mayor is just a really interesting legacy to wrestle with. And hearing Tom discuss some of not only his coverage and the general atmosphere around Dinkins, but also that some of the popular sort of narrative and imagination around Dinkins may not be that accurate today is a very important conversation to have 30 years on, especially with Dinkins at 92 years old. And a great conversation to have with an excellent reporter like Tom and an astute observer of the city. Just some nuance. You know, he did not deny that Dinkins had some wrinkles, some um, some warts as a leader, some falling downs, and some of which he pointed out contemporaneously, you know, how, how often he worked and what time he got to the office and things like that. But to have the person who then had perspective and now has distance to talk about sort of how that looks from 30 years in the rearview mirror, I think was was pretty helpful. And I think it's also helpful to, to, to help us and other journalists think about coverage of Mayor de Blasio now and other figures and and to also make connections from then to now and some of the themes certainly that we're still wrestling with. Yes, 30 years from now you and I will be talking about de Blasio. Hopefully our hair will look as great as Tom Robbins does. You've been listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI. We're on every Wednesday at 5. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News. And until next week, have a great week in the greatest city in the world.